Garden Basics with Farmer Fred is brought to you by Smart Pots, the original lightweight, long-lasting fabric plant container. It's made in the USA. Visit smartpots.com slash Fred for more information and a special discount. That's smartpots.com slash Fred. Welcome to the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast. If you're just a beginning gardener or you want good gardening information, well, you've come to the right spot. Are your tomatoes getting a little too big for their britches, but you want to wait to plant? Our favorite retired college horticulture professor, Debbie Flower, has some tips about transplanting overgrown tomatoes from small pots directly into the ground. Plus, she shares her tomato and pepper planting secret for turning those newly planted vegetables into even stronger plants. You may never plant your tomatoes the same way again after you hear what she has to say. Master gardener Pam Bone tackles a vexing topic. What's better to put on top of the garden soil? Finely sifted compost or coarse mulch? Maybe tree trimmings. And the plant of the week is a small flowering tree that has what Warren Roberts of the UC Davis Arboretum describes as the purest white flowers of any blooming plant. It's the Chianthus, also known as the fringe tree, which is native to many areas across the United States. It's all on episode 93 of the Garden Basics podcast, brought to you by Smart Pots. And we'll do it all in under 30 minutes. Let's go. Here on the Garden Basics podcast, we like to answer your garden questions. There's a lot of ways you can contact us. You can give us a call at 916-292-8964. That's 916-292-8964. 8964. Uh, Don't want to call? You can text us at that number. Maybe send a picture or two as well. You can also contact us via SpeakPipe. You just leave an audio question with your computer. SpeakPipe.com slash Garden Basics. It's easy. Give it a try. Email's fine too. Send it to Fred at FarmerFred.com or you can leave a message at the Get Growing with Farmer Fred Facebook page or the Farmer Fred Twitter page, or on Instagram to Farmer Fred Hoffman. Debbie Flowers with us, our favorite retired college horticultural professor to help us answer these questions. And we have a question that was phoned in about tomatoes. Uh, Debbie, you want to give a listen to this? Sure thing. All right. Hi, my name is Jennifer. Um, I live in Woodland. Um, we I started tomatoes in my uh, greenhouse it's a non-heated greenhouse um, in late January, I think, or February. Um, anyways, the tomatoes and tomatillos that I have, they're they're both have outgrown the four-inch pots that they're in right now. The plants are more like about two times as tall as the pot. They're starting to get, they're not root-bound yet, but they're starting to get there. I've been wanting to wait until the end of April to plant them in, in the garden like you recommend, but I'm a little concerned that the plants are going to start suffering if I leave them in those four-inch pots any longer. Um, we have prepared garden beds. They're raised beds that we built. The soil in the bed is a mixture of the native clay that we have. It's um, subsoil. It's a brand-new development we live in. And it's mixed with about, honestly, about 80% um, compost that we got from a local landscaping company. I've got the drip irrigation already installed and ready. I just didn't want to plant the tomatoes and the tomatillos until the end of April, but I'm not really sure what to do. I don't have enough one-gallon pots to pop them up into a larger size, so I'm wondering if I should just go ahead and plant them um, and just cover them with a cloth at night. I don't have 
frost protection stuff, but I guess I could get some. Anyways, if you could let me know what I should do in this circumstance, I'd really appreciate some advice. Thank you so much. Debbie, it sounds like Jennifer's a new gardener. It does, and she's really going after it. A yes. greenhouse and baby baby plants from seed. Good for yeah, her. Yeah, exactly. To bring uh, people who don't live in the Sacramento area up to speed here, uh, for years I have advocated on local radio that official tomato planting day is April 28th. That's just a cheap ploy for me to get birthday card greetings, <laughs> basically. But April 28th around here in these parts is actually a good time for planting tomatoes outdoors because overnight temperatures are above 50. Soil mm-hmm. temperatures are creeping into the mid-60s by late April. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so late April is a good time, but people <laughs> can't wait. And people around here have been planting since March. I don't know mm-hmm. how they did during the hailstorm in March, but, um, you know, we won't go into that. Uh, but good good for you, Jennifer, <laughs> holding yeah, out till really. April 28th. But it sounds like uh, your plants uh, may need some uh, surgery or transplanting. Right, transplanting. I can commiserate with her about having started the tomatoes early and having big ones. And I did move mine to gallons, and now they're taller than the gallon pot is tall. When did you plant uh, those seeds? Late January, right about the time she did. And actually some uh, came up right away. One, I have only have two types. I have Ace 55, which is a bush tomato, and that's the one that came up fast and is big and the stems are fat and um, they're looking really fine. I pulled them out uh, to harden off, which is something she should do, get them out of the greenhouse and harden them off. But I also planted early girls and the seed was old and it took much longer to germinate. And they're just in four inch and about the the height of the four inch pot. So it's um, the early girls can definitely wait until your birthday to be planted in the garden. But I'm considering putting the ace 55 in the ground already. I was out yesterday measuring the temperature at about four inch depth in both my raised bed and the area around it, which are the places that I plant my vegetables. And in both places, it was about 45 degrees. I'm sorry, it was about 55 degrees. And that's that's not perfect for tomatoes, but it's certainly not going to harm them. So what I will watch, so I will plant my tomatoes out, which Jennifer can do, and I will watch the night temperatures. And if we're going to get Below 40 for sure, maybe even below 45, I will go out with a sheet. I don't have floating row cover available for the places the tomatoes are going to go. So I'll just go out with a bed sheet and cover them to keep them warm overnight. They may turn a little bit red, red in the stems, a little bit red in the leaves uh, if if the soil gets too cold. Uh, And that's okay. They'll outgrow that. Uh, There is no evidence yet that, that I've seen that... Temperatures, soil temperatures um, at the 55 degree point will harm the tomatoes. They just may sit there and do nothing until temperatures warm up a little bit more. Well, One thing I'm a little concerned about, but we have not had rain, and I would like to see that bed moist before she plants into it. Good idea to uh, moisten the bed thoroughly uh, before you plant. I think at this time we should uh, reiterate uh, your uh, secret recipe for planting tomatoes and peppers. <laughs> well, I can't say it's so secret, but it's uh, planting them in a trench. As I said, the Ace 55, which is a bush tomato, uh, determinant tomato, terms we've talked about other times, but it it uh, is the tall one. And 
the first thing you want out of a plant you put in the garden is roots. And tomatoes are able to make roots out of their stems, as are peppers. And so you can plant them deeply. That brings to mind a very big hole, very deep hole. Rather than going straight down in the bed, it's better to make a trench or a gutter and lay the plant in sideways. Uh, the root ball, obviously, a little bit lower than the stem, but the stem, part of the berry, part of the stem, leaves and all. You may need a stake to have the whatever sticks out of the ground stand up straight. You may need to attach it to a stake and then cover it up. And what the plant will do is create roots out of that buried stem along with the existing root system, and that will make a stronger plant in the long run. Now, with peppers, you don't have to bury them in a trench because most usually aren't that big. They're maybe six or eight inches tall. You could bury most of it, couldn't you? Correct. You can go straight down. If I were doing the four inch, the the early girl that I have in four inch, they've got maybe three inches of root ball on them and I might bury them another three inches. But with that, I could go straight down. Yes. So, Jennifer, basically, yeah, if, if those uh, tomato plants are getting too big for their britches, uh, yes, yeah, save them before they get too root bound. Now, if Jennifer takes those tomatoes out of their four inch pot and she sees roots encircling uh, the plant, should she untangle them? She should do something about that. Uh, it's it's not as critical with an herbaceous plant like a tomato as it would be with a woody plant like an oak tree. But circling roots are not going to change direction once you put them in the ground. And what we want is the roots to spread out. And so the best thing to do is use a sharp tool and cut the roots. I know it sounds horrible and brutal, but cut the roots. I try to do four uh, a cut on each side, four, so four cuts down the side from the top of the soil to the bottom, and then an X across the bottom. And that will s set the plant back. If you've done root damage, you'll always do root damage when transplanting, whether you cut the roots or not. And so I actually uh, then might make a um, teepee out of a piece of newspaper and put it over the plant and anchor it with a stake or so for about three days to allow those uh, cut roots to close off the wounds and make new root tips. The root tips are where all the water and nutrients are absorbed. And it takes about, on average, two to three days for new root tips to form. And once that's happened, then the plant will take off and have roots going in all directions uh, and be able to absorb more water and, and nutrients really well. If you don't cut them, you're going to have these circling roots and the plant may never really establish a wide fibrous, thick root system and may suffer down the road. And for those who don't know, a newspaper is this thing they used to throw on your driveway. <laughs> so it may be you, you, you could make that tent out of any sort of paper product. You could use an Amazon. Right, you, could you use an Amazon box? I was just going to say you could you could use an Amazon box. You don't want it to sit on the plant. You might have to put in stakes and sort mm -hmm. of uh, hold it up on the, on the stakes or this was first taught to me when I was attending University of Nevada, Reno, in, when I started my graduate school. And it was a very wise uh, older woman who had been, who was very into native plants. And she always suggested just putting a, like a piece of cardboard on a stake on the sunny side of the plant, just mm -hmm. make it tall so that it, it provided more shade than the plant would, will get in the future. Oh, that's great. Just something to, to shade the plant a little bit. All right. So, Jennifer, have fun with your tomato plants. I, I, it's okay. I, I'll live. You, you don't have to plant on my birthday, April 28th. But send Fred a birthday card. Yes. How about that? Or call him up with birthday greetings on the, the phone. The Garden Basics the hotline. Yes. Yes. Thank you. 916-292-8964. Thank you so much. Debbie Flower. 
I love solving problems with you. Thank you. Thank you. We're glad to have SmartPots on board supporting the Garden Basics podcast. SmartPots are the original award-winning fabric planter. They're sold worldwide. SmartPots are proudly made 100% in the USA. I'm pretty picky about who I allow to advertise on this program. My criteria, though, is, is pretty simple. It has to be a product I like, a product I use, a product I would buy again. And SmartPots clicks all those boxes. They're durable. They're reusable. SmartPots are available at independent garden centers and select Ace and True Value stores nationwide. To find a store near you, visit SmartPots.com Fred. It's SmartPots, the original award-winning fabric planter. Go to SmartPots.com Fred for more info and that special Farmer Fred discount on your next SmartPot purchase. Go to smartpots.com slash Fred. We like to answer your garden questions here on the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast. We're bringing in a tree expert for this one, Pam Bone. She's a Sacramento County Master Gardener, also an urban forester, a member of the Sacramento Tree Foundation. And we're going to talk about tree parts, especially the mulch that you might get. Because uh, Wendy writes in, and asks, I have noticed that several of the gardeners keep talking about mulching with compost. I have always thought of mulch as bark. I thought bark mulch was supposed to hold the moisture and provide weed control. Does compost do the same thing? Are there circumstances where one is preferred over the other? Also, you mentioned tree trimmings as a preferred mulch. I have considered using chip drop, but I wondered if someone is removing a sick tree and that could bring a disease to my yard. I've been hesitant to try this for that reason. All very good questions, Wendy. Pam Bone, uh, where do you want to start? How about compost versus uh, uh, bark? Oh, yeah, let's just give the definition of between what a compost is and mulch. And first of all, compost is something that has already been broken down. It's much smaller in texture. It's been composted. So it's it's plant material of all kinds. It could be bark. It could be, uh, though that takes a long time to compost. Most of the time you think of grass clippings, you think of food scraps, uh, you think of leaves and all of those things that you've composted. When you buy commercial compost, however, uh, that may not be made up of your food scraps and other things. It's made up of sometimes yard waste, and sometimes it's made up of waste that comes out of uh, plywood mills and other lumber operations that they've uh, composted down. So it's already a more finished material that uh, we don't normally use on top as a mulch so what's a mulch then? Mulch is usually something used on top. It is usually a much larger component. You can have bark mulch. You can have wood chips that come from arborist tree trimmings uh, operations. Um, and I'm talking organic mulches. I mean, we can also, you can call anything that covers the soil a mulch. And so, for instance, black plastic, which I don't recommend, or uh, landscape weed fabric, which has to me, limited uses, but or, or ground um, up may, tires. Yeah, ground up tires. I mean, all of that stuff, that's inorganic. Organic is stuff that comes from a plant. And so mulch is something that basically you put on the uh, surface of the soil. And I think it enhances the appearance of the soil and it improves the uh, conditions for the plants to grow in. 
Compost, on the other hand, is often worked into the soil, especially with vegetable gardens or annual beds or other things where you're putting stuff in uh, on a regular basis. Though, and maybe this is where she gets a little bit of the confusion, you and I are both real strong components of using compost as a top dressing. So even though I use a lot of wood chip mulch on the surface uh, of the entire landscape everywhere, then I will often use my own compost and use it as a top dressing where I put it over the top of the wood chips, particularly mm. around my fruit crops and uh, fruit trees or the vegetables or the berries. And then and you I water know it you in do the same thing. Well, actually, I, I do it the other way around. I, I will put the compost down first and then top it with the mulch, knowing that the compost will break down and feed the soil quicker that way. Oh, exactly. If you're doing that for the first time, let's say that uh, you haven't put your mulch down yet, but um, wood chips in my landscape usually are on for at least a couple of years before I have to uh, refresh them and put more on. And uh, one of the, of course, benefits of putting uh, any kind of uh, organic mulch like that is to reduce the weeds. And once I notice that they're starting to get more thin and the light can get through and then it's not going to have the weed protection, then I'm going to put more on. So oftentimes I'm having to top dress over the top of the mulch because mm -hmm. the wood chips are already down. Are You're you, talking about before putting the wood chips down. Are you what? The, do you then water that compost into the bark? No, I just wait um, until the next uh, time that the irrigation system goes on or that it rains or whatever. So, um, And I usually do it in the late spring. It, it was actually already done about a, a month ago. And uh, top dress all over everything. It goes. I, I grow a lot of uh, raspberries and boysenberries and a lot of citrus, a lot of fruit trees. All of them get it. And you know what it, it's good for? It's instead of fertilizing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it feeds times, the soil. Yeah. But let's exactly. uh, the, the the Compost Appreciation Society is already uh, emailing me and they are saying, why not just have compost as a mulch because uh, we have it and the the rain will work it into the soil? Why not just lay it on top of the soil? Well, one good oh, reason. That's fine. Yeah. OK. Yeah. But one good reason to cover it with another coarser bark or mulch oh. is because weed seeds can easily get embedded in that fine compost and all of a sudden you're pulling out weeds. Not only can it get embedded, but the fact is the compost is much thinner anyhow. Um, who has that much compost to put it on as thick as you would mulch? You have to usually put on anywhere from three to four inches thick at least. And you want to make sure no light can get through. And compost is pretty valuable stuff. And even though I actually have about eight compost piles, most people do not do that much composting. And if you were to go purchase compost, you're going to be spending a lot of money. So Fred, for the the reason of getting weeds that can get through on their own into the um, soil down below or the ones that are already in the reservoir into the um, that are in the soil right now and that go, ah, oh, there's some light I can see and they they poke on through. So compost as a mulch by itself is usually not practical. It's expensive to say the least, but it will work if you don't mind pulling weeds. Uh, but again, uh, we both are big proponents of using ground up bark, uh, chipped and shredded tree trimmings as a preferred mulch. 
Wendy, in her letter uh, to us, talks about her hesitancy to using a chip drop, which is what an arborist would drop off in your, in your driveway of chipped and shredded tree parts. She's afraid that it could have been from a sick tree and that disease could be transferred to her yard and that she's been hesitant to try it for this reason. Do you want to uh, allay her fears? Definitely. For the most part, I would not be concerned at all about uh, almost 99% of the time. Now, depending on where you live uh, and knowing your own diseases and insects and that that might infest your trees, you do need to find that out. So, for instance, here in California, not in our area, but for instance, in Southern California, they have a problem with a particular kind of shot hole borer. And so they specifically say that you either need to chip up your tree into really tiny little pieces to make sure the little borers don't stay alive inside those chips, or you need to uh, cover the stuff and solarize it or basically steam it and try to make sure that you've killed off any of the insects that are there. And there's a couple of different uh, borers that might do that. And some, depending on what state you live in, you might find that you've got a, a borer or some sort of other thing that you have to do for that specific tree if that if you know that that's a problem in your area. The same thing with fungus. Um, occasionally, there may be some specific kind of fungus that is a problem in your area. But the general type things, if the tree just died and you didn't know why it died, most of the time... That is not a problem at all. In fact, dead trees uh, make very good mulch because they're nice and dried out and uh, they are just excellent uh, for chipping up and and work out very, very well. In fact, uh, a dead tree or a tree in the winter months doesn't have leaves in it so that you don't get a big giant stew pot full of leaves uh, in your mulch pile. So. I've been putting down arborist-type wood chips for the last uh, 40-plus years in my landscape and have never, ever brought in any kind of insect or disease from every single kind of tree you can even imagine uh, that have come. Now, there's occasionally uh, that you will say maybe you don't like a particular item that comes from a tree. And Fred, I know you're notorious for saying, I do not want those spiny balls from the liquid amber. Amen to that. Or perhaps off of a sycamore tree, and you don't like those that are going to be spread around your landscape, then you might say, oh, please don't bring a load like that. Now here living in California, I will specify, gosh, if you've cut down a redwood, could you bring that? (laughs) Because they last forever and the chips are absolutely phenomenal. But that's limited to those that live in California. Yeah, I I would say that for the most part, just understanding if you've got any uh, news bulletins from your area about specific kinds of uh, pest problems that you have to treat the mulch differently, that you have to chip it, you can't transport it, or you know specifically. Otherwise, don't worry about it. Just use them. They're fine. They work great. Contact your local tree company and see if they have a chip drop program because they may be very glad to drop off a load into your driveway without uh, any questions at all. So you might want to give them a call and see if they do provide a chip drop service. Pam Bone, urban forester, master gardener, member of the Sacramento Tree Foundation. Thanks so much for the good advice about compost and mulch. 
Well, thank you very much for having me, Fred. I'm very passionate about trees, and I'd be happy to come back and give you even more information about how to keep your trees healthy, safe, and happy. Here on the Garden Basics Podcast, we like to talk with the Superintendent Emeritus of the UC Davis Arboretum, Warren Roberts. He always has a plant of the week for us. And Warren, uh, here is uh, a plant of the week that uh, I think shouldn't be on the fringes of the nursery. It should be up front and center. (laughs) And maybe people will want to take a look at the fringe tree, especially since it it comes from many places in the United States, uh, Pennsylvania, Florida, Texas. Yes. And with fringe like these, who needs an update? Stop it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Geonanthus reduces is the Chinese fringe tree. Uh, the name Chionanthus, uh, we talked uh, in the past about Chimonanthus, like Chim Chimini, but this is Chionanthus. Chionanthus retuses the Chinese fringe tree. It's kind of a small tree in the olive family. In fact, it produces olive-like fruit that has the whitest flowers, the most pure white flowers of almost anything I know. Mm. There's no pink. There's no green. It's just pure, pure white. And it forms like a cloud of uh, white flowers in the springtime. It has not been easy to find until until sort of recently, uh, during the, you know the current decade. Yes, you can you can uh, get it at nurseries. It has attractive bark, kind of pale tan bark with a net-like pattern. The fruit is slate blue, and produced sometimes in abundance, and uh, but never enough to be a real nuisance, I'd say. It's not an overwhelming tree or shrub, is it? It gets, what, maybe 18, 20 feet tall? If that, yeah, it's not really very tall, so it's kind of easy to tuck into a garden if you want a small deciduous tree. The advantage of deciduous trees, that is to say, in this case, trees that lose their leaves in the in the wintertime, is that it lets in the winter sun. So you'd think you'd want an evergreen tree, but that doesn't work very well if you want winter sunshine. So this is a good example of a rather small shade tree, which uh, has beautiful flowers. Occasionally, it will give a kind of a yellow, sometimes a pinkish fall color, not much. That's not its big, strong suit. The leaves are attractive and the flowers are just gorgeous. And it's called fringe tree because the flowers, the petals are very, very, very long and narrow for the size of the flower. It's a very attractive flower, and gosh, (laughs) I'm very fond of the tree myself. Now, there is a relative of this Chinese fringe tree native uh, to the eastern U.S., from Pennsylvania to Florida to Texas, and that's Chionanthus virginicus. It blooms later, um, and is uh, more of a shrub than than a tree usually. And the flowers are abundant, again, like a cloud, but it... The flowers are kind of a, a greenish white. They're very attractive, though, or a greenish grayish white. And the, the uh, it's just called fringe tree in its native range. Uh, it's also called old man's beard <laughs> uh, because of the kind of gray white color of the flowers. And, and again, the petals are very very string like. So both of these are very attractive uh, plants and unusual. So, you know, you'd be the first on your block to have one. (laughs) You know, that's a funny thing about successful plants. Often their plants are so successful in the garden that they become common, and then people uh, don't appreciate them as much. I remember the the late Lester Roundtree uh, 
living in Carmel, and, and she lived, oh gosh, didn't she live to be 100? At any rate, toward the, the end, towards the end of her life, she uh, slept much of the time, and then when she was up, she was just bright and, and sparkling uh, personality. She had come home from being uh, an, an invalid, and she looked out on the, the uh, porch, and her uh, sister-in-law had planted geraniums. And she staggered back, and she said, oh, geraniums, we've gone common. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I think it'll be a while before Chinanthus retusus and Chinanthus virginicus become common. But they're certainly worth thinking about when you're planning a landscape. Warren, let's talk a little bit about uh, the University of California Davis Arboretum. Uh, the COVID-19 situation has put its annual plant sale in uh, sort of an online situation. And this might be something for those of you who are listening to the Garden Basics podcast, say within 50 miles or so of Davis to take advantage of, is the online plant sales that are going on during April and May at the UC Davis Arboretum. It's a rather ex uh, extensive list of plants, isn't it, Warren? Oh, yes. There's hundreds and hundreds of different things well, that are mostly grown right here in the Central Valley of California with with its uh, challenging climate and, and water. So, yes, many different kinds of things, shrubs, perennials, even a few trees, succulents. It's a wonderful, uh, a wonderful list of plants, and you can get it online. Find out more about the online plant sales going on there and the times of the sales and uh, what you have to do to pick them up at the uh, Arboretum website, which is arboretum.ucdavis.com. Dot edu. The Fringe Tree, Chiananthus, it's the plant of the week. Warren Roberts, thanks so much. Appreciate it. You're welcome, Fred. I appreciate the opportunity. Garden Basics comes out every Tuesday and Friday and is brought to you by Smart Pots. It's available just about anywhere, and that includes Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. And for Northern California gardeners, it's the Green Acres Garden Podcast with Farmer Fred. It's available also wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and leaving comments.